The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. For those of you who are visiting today, uh, we have a a special service for the children called The Herd, and it's from ages four through second grade. So if your kids would like to go down and join Mr. Michael and Ms. Allie, they can go right now, and they'll come up at the end of the preaching. And our scripture reading today is in 1 John chapter 3, and it's verses 4 through 10. In the Black Bibles by your seats. It's on page 1022. You may stand, please, as we read together. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You may be seated. Just going to pray with you real quick, and then, Lord, thank you for the word that you are about to bring us this morning through this man. Lord, bless him. Give him courage, give him boldness, give him discernment, give him wisdom as he speaks your truth to us this morning. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and lives that respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Delta. How you doing? Good. Uh, Today is Crank Up the Heat Sunday, and so um, thanks for joining us today. What we've done is we turned on the heater instead of the air conditioner. Um, for any of you who might be wondering why it is very hot in here, um, this, this seems to be like a weekly problem where we ask the Goodwill building to turn up the AC in time, and inevitably, like it turns on like at like at eleven when like we're all like about to leave, and uh, it's like man, I guess daylight and a dollar short. Some's better than none. I, I'm, I'm not sure there, but uh, so I just apologize for that um, on the front end. Um, what we're doing uh, is we're working through the first letter of John, the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote the book of Revelation, and then we have three letters written by him, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we're right smack dab in the middle of his first letter. And what we're going to have before us this morning, if you just had your ears turned on and you're listening to Tara as she was reading the text for us, is probably arguably some of the hardest words to understand, some of the um, hardest words to hear and apply to ourselves as we listen to what John has to say to us this morning. I'm right in the middle of some scripture where John is talking about what it truly means to be a child of God. Last week he talked about children of God or those who truly abide in Christ. And this week he's going to pick back up that theme of the children of God, how we can know who are truly the children of God, but he's going to run it against the grid of sin and how sin works and relates in the lives of those who are truly born of God. And so this morning, what we're going to do is see John talk to us about sin and the children of God. So I'm guessing most of us have either seen this or experienced this for ourselves, um, watching one of those great joys in life when um, a bride... Um, knows that her wedding day is coming. So some of us have experienced this. Some of us have maybe just watched it or um, attended the wedding or you just knew someone who was going to be getting married. And so this man and the woman have come together and this woman knows that this wedding day is set a couple of months um, down the road. And so what she does, knowing that that future wedding day is coming, what she, she does is she begins to prepare herself now for her groom on that day. 
Um, the future reality that that set day is coming, it's on the calendar, it's going to happen, doesn't drive her to sit passively in the present. But the fact that that future wedding day is going to come, she wants to present herself and all of her beauty for her groom, actually drives her to begin doing things in the present. Last week, we saw the Apostle John take that same kind of idea and just straight up apply it to the children of God. The Apostle John talks about this idea of the appearing of Christ. And last week, we saw him say that there is this future day coming where Jesus is going to come back. And for those who are the true children of God, what they do is they look at that future day and go, man, the sinless Jesus, the righteous Jesus, the pure and holy Jesus, I'm going to be made like him. And that future day, what it does is it actually drives the true children of God to live holy lives in the present, preparing themselves purifying themselves, John says, as Jesus is pure. Why? Because that future day is coming, and Jesus is my king, and and I'm going to appear, and when he appears, I'm going to be made like him, and it drives me in the present to make myself like Jesus. Now, what John's going to do this morning is turn our gaze from the future appearing of Jesus and the effect that it has on us in the present And he's going to turn our eyes to the past appearance of Jesus and show us the effect that the past appearance of Jesus is meant to have on us in the present. Last week, future appearing is meant to mean something for us now in the present. This morning, it's the past appearing of Jesus is meant to mean something for you and I in the present in the way that you and I live. And he's specifically going to run this past appearance of Jesus through the grid of sin. He's going to show us that the habitual practice of sin is not only incompatible, but it's also impossible for those who have truly been born again. And John is going to anchor all of this in that first appearing of Jesus. So when we look at these handful of verses, verses 4 through 10, 1 John chapter 3, what we're going to see are at least these two truths come to us. And they're going to be sort of um, road signs, markers through the text to help us understand what John is saying to the children of God as it relates to sin. And I believe John wants, to see, wants us to see these two truths. First is this, that Christ appeared to take away sin. And the second is this, that Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Christ appeared to take away sin, and Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So open up your copy of Scripture. There's that black hardback Bible around you. If you've got your phone or your iPad or whatever it might be, find your way to 1 John chapter 3, and look what John writes in verses 4 through 7. This is where we're going to see that Christ appeared to take away sin. Look at what John writes. In verse 4, he says this, Everyone... Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And here's your definition of what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. And he writes, now you know that Christ appeared, and he appeared in order to take away sins, and you also know this, that in him, in Christ, there is no sin. Therefore, no one who abides in this sinless Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on habitually, consistently as the pattern of their life, giving themselves over to sin, this person has neither seen Jesus nor do they know Jesus. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness... This is the one who is righteous as he is righteous. Christ appeared to take away sin. Now before we can begin to understand how God's children are to have nothing to do with sin, we must first understand what sin is. And this is exactly where the Apostle John goes. He wants us to see in these verses, before we can start talking about this idea of practicing sin, not practicing sin, practicing righteousness, not practicing righteousness, all of this is sort of revolving around that nucleus of sin. And before we can understand all these periphery sort of things, we just need to really understand, like, what is John driving at? Like, what's his definition of sin? 
We use this word in the church a lot. Um, sometimes we toss it around in pop culture, but if we don't have like a really good definition of what the Bible says sin is or is not, then what we can do is easily misapply these, these verses to us. And what John is going to say, he's going to say in these verses 4 through 7, he's going to show us something about sin, he's going to show us something about Christ, and then he's going to show us something about sin and how it relates to God's children. So in verse 4, we just see John is going to unpack for us the nature of what sin is. How do we define sin? John writes, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And to describe sin as lawlessness is to describe sin in terms of rebellion. In terms of rebellion. The Bible talks about it sometimes as missing the mark, falling short of the glory of God, these sorts of things. Here, John is saying this, is that sin is lawlessness. It is this idea of rebellion. It is this idea of seeing God's law, which is the perfect reflection of who He is in His holiness, in His goodness, in His justice, in His truth, in His righteousness, God reflects himself in the law, so God's law, his word comes to us, and then what we do when we sin is go, God, I see what you're saying, I see the perfect reflection of who you are in your word, and then what we do is we look at his word and go, no thanks. I'm going to decidedly choose to do the exact opposite. I'm going to rebel against my God, my creator, and not do what he calls me to do. God is our creator, and as creator, God is our sovereign and rightful ruler over every aspect of our lives, but sin so corrupts our hearts that it causes us to rebel against our creator. So instead of joyfully coming to God's law, his word, the perfect reflection of all that he is in his word, and joyfully submitting ourselves to it, allowing it to have authority over our lives, What we do is we essentially say to God, I hate your law. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't like your rule over me, and I'm just going to simply run my own life quite apart from you. Thank you very much. One man writes this, sin is nothing less than cosmic treason against our sovereign creator. It's the habitual and settled disposition of a heart which says, no thanks God, I'm going to do it my way. And not only does sin corrupt and destroy, but it separates all creation from from its creator. This is the fundamental problem with sin. So John, notice what he says there. It's that first little word, at least in in my translation, verse 4, everyone. So this isn't like rich, poor, young, old. This isn't black, white. This isn't European, American. This isn't the smart or the foolish. This is everyone falls into this category. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God because there's something innately in all of us which says, God, I see who you are. I see what you're about. I see what you're calling me to do, but I'm going to take these things. I'm going to suppress this truth and I'm going to place myself on the throne of my heart and say, I've got this. I'm going to do this however I see fit. This is the problem with sin. That attitude of heart, that disposition of heart, fundamentally separates us from God. Absolutely separates us from God. That's the problem of sin. And because this problem is so great, what you and I need, because all of us here in this room at least, fall into that category of the everyone, first addressed here in verse 4, Because this problem of sin is so great, what you and I need is a great rescue by a great rescuer. Because the Bible simultaneously says, just as much as it is true that all of us fall into that category of lawlessness, God's law being broken by us, all of us are completely incapable of being able to rescue ourselves. We need a great rescue from a great rescuer. And this is exactly where John goes next. Look at verse 5. John turns and shows us, okay, not only do we know what the nature of sin is, but what is the purpose of Christ? Like, why did Jesus have to come? And he had to come because the problem with all of us is sin. So when John turns to verse 5, he says this, 
you know that he appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins. Now, I love it when the Bible just gets, like, super simple. Like, we don't have to guess here. Like, why did Jesus show up? Like, why the whole Jesus thing? Like, why Christmas? Why the incarnation? Why do we celebrate Advent? Like, why the baby and the manger and the nativity and all that kind of stuff? Like, what's the whole point of the Jesus thing? John says, you don't have to wonder. He's going to say it twice. He says it in verse 5, first place here. You know that he appeared. The reason why Jesus appeared, the purpose that Christ, the Son of God, cloaked in flesh, came down into earth, was for at least this one reason, in order to take away sins. Now, this is good news for us. Because the problem with all of us is a heart that is riddled and stained with sin. Sin is the burden on our backs which we cannot remove, the stain in our hearts which we cannot cleanse. Sin is the burden which weighs us down, separating us from God, dragging us down to hell. But it's for this purpose that Christ appeared in order to take away sins. The good news of the cross is that through his death, Jesus appeared and fully accomplished everything necessary to totally defeat the enemy of sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and by his bloody death on the cross, Jesus lifted up, removed, and carried away our sins. But what makes his work on the cross possible is the fact that in Jesus there is no sin. So when Jesus performed the work of taking up and away, carrying away our sin, he didn't like somehow necessarily just put it on himself and then himself become sin-filled, stained by sin. Jesus was able to live a perfect life, a sinless life, and in the act of cleansing us of our sin, was able to remain sinless all the way through. Our sin in no way affected him. The sinlessness of Christ is part of what qualifies Jesus to provide the rescue that we all need. So John shows us that, yes, sin it is an absolutely big problem. Verse 4, the neon sign, the flashing lights that should be glowing and blazing from your Bible about verse 4 is this. This is a big problem. Like, this isn't a light thing. This isn't something we just brush under the rug and, like, just some, somehow sort of minimize. This reality of verse 4 tells us that if we die in our sin apart from the ransoming and redeeming work of Jesus, all of us are going to spend eternity separated from God in hell. But here we have the good news in verse 5. John shows us that, yes, sin is a big problem. But the double whammy which defeats sin is that sinless person of Christ and the perfect work on the cross. Now, to know the nature of sin and the purpose of Christ appearing is meant to have an effect on God's children. What I love about John and the way that he writes his letter and the way he works through his verses is John is just so black and white. I've said this before. He's just so simple. So he doesn't try to spin out a bunch of theology and like, you know, you need more degrees than Fahrenheit to be able to understand what he says and you're just trying to like, you know, anchor yourself going like, where's he at? I don't know what he's saying. This isn't the way John writes. John writes and he takes the cookies down to the low shelf and he just simply says this, listen, everyone who makes a practice of sin practices lawlessness because after all, I mean, the definition of sin is lawlessness, lawlessness. Now, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and Jesus himself is sinless. Logically, therefore, we can conclude that no one who abides in him is going to keep on consistently doing the one thing that Jesus showed up to take away in us. To abide in Christ is to abide in the sinless Savior. John wants us to see that the practice of sin is incompatible for those who truly and genuinely abide in Christ. Because there is no sin in Jesus, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. In fact, if one does continue in a pattern or practice of consistent sin, the other logical and necessary conclusion must be drawn. End of verse 6. Everyone who keeps on sinning has neither seen him or known him in a personal and saving relationship. See, the issue... The issue just simply comes down to this. If the sinless Son of God appeared in order to take away sin, 
How is it possible to abide in him and then continue in a habitual pattern of sin at the same time? And John's answer is, you can't. You simply can't do it. To abide in Christ and then to walk in a habitual pattern of sin is entirely incompatible. It can't be done. So the question that we must unavoidably ask ourselves when we read sort of this logical flow, this logical argument, listen, Christ appeared in order to take away sins, in Him there is no sin, so if we are abiding in Him while simultaneously living out a consistent habitual pattern of sin in our life, John goes, there's a disconnect in there somewhere. One of these things is, is not true. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is this, have my sins been taken away? I mean, that's what John says. Jesus showed up and he appeared in order to take away sins. Is this reality of what Christ accomplished on the cross true of you? Is it true of you? According to verse 6, John says the way that you answer this question is that you look at your lifestyle. Have my sins been taken away? Do I keep on sinning or is my life distinctively different? And John says, look at your lifestyle. Your lifestyle will become the indicator which helps you understand if verse 5 is genuinely true of you. He doesn't tell us to look for a raised hand at the end of a sermon. He doesn't ask if we've walked an aisle. He doesn't look to see if we've been baptized or if we've even become a member of a church. Even though all these things are good and all these things are, are right, they're, they're good parts of our Christian pilgrimage or Christian journey here on earth. But John doesn't say look to these things as the sign and evidence that you genuinely are abiding in Him, that you are genuinely in the place where Christ has taken away your sins. He says this, you can know that you are genuinely abiding in Jesus, that Jesus has genuinely taken away the sin that must be taken away in order for you to have a right relationship with him if your life is marked by righteousness and not a habitual, consistent pattern of sin. John simply says, do you keep on sinning? And if the answer is yes, the consistent pattern of my life is a pattern of sin, then John says, you have not seen Jesus and you don't know Jesus in a saving way. You don't know him in the saving way that's described in verse 5. Now the warning for us is this. We have to know that there are those who will try and sell us on the exact opposite of everything that John has just said. That was the problem John is addressing here when he moves into verse 7. There were people in the churches under the Apostle John's pastoral care who were coming along and saying the exact opposite. They were showing up and basically saying this, it is possible for you to give yourselves over to a consistent pattern of sin and be righteous at the same time. To abide in Jesus and yet give yourself over to things that are lawlessness, sin, the breaking of God's law. And just as much as there were people in John's day who were teaching these things, it's just as true in our culture today. There are people, our culture will come along and say, sin, not a big deal. It's okay if you don't do everything like the Bible quite fully says. It's okay that you listen to God and then not do what God asks you to do. I mean, after all, it's sort of an ancient book. It's old. It's outdated. We're modern. We're, we're updated. We're more smart. That was for them and for ancient people in ancient time. This stuff has no bearing, no gravity, no weight, no truth. That's got to bear itself on us. And what they do is they begin to take the things of God, the things of Christ, the need for man to be redeemed to a holy God, and they begin to press and press and press and lower it down and water it down and water it down until the necessity for a Savior just becomes a moot point because, after all, we're not really that bad of people, right? But this is why the Apostle John lovingly commands us, little children, let no one deceive you. 
there were people in the church in John's day, false teachers who had infiltrated the walls of the church and were genuinely going around and telling us, like, listen, this, this Jesus thing, it can really be pulled off minus the category of sin. Like, it's possible for you to abide in Jesus and not have to worry about this whole sin thing. I mean, after all, sin. But John says, little children, don't let anyone deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, this is the one who is righteous as he is righteous. Apparently, the the false teachers were saying something like this. Whoever practices sin, this person is just as righteous as Jesus is righteous. It's really not that big a deal. The false teachers of John's day were teaching that it was possible for God's children to pursue this lifestyle of sin. They were promoting an error which downplayed the seriousness of sin. They said sin is no big deal. But John's warning is clear that to think this way is to simply be deceived. You either abide in Jesus and practice righteousness as he is righteous, or you abide in the devil and practice, make a practice of sinning just as he has been sinning from the beginning. And John's plea is that in this we would simply just not be deceived. He wants us to see that Christ appeared in order to take away sins. So now that Christ has appeared in order to take away sins, we see this truth in verses 4 through 7, but what does John have to say to us in verses 8 through 10? And it is this, not only has Christ appeared in order to take away sins, but he has also appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So look at your copy of scripture, look at verses 8 through 10. John goes on, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Listen, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's nature, God's seed, abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The origin of sin lies with the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The characteristic work of the devil is sin, but the good news of the gospel is that the characteristic work of the Son of God is to save And John once again points us to the good news of the gospel when he directs our attention to the reason the Son of God appeared, namely to destroy the works of the devil. This is the purpose of Christ's appearing. There's not very many places where John just gets more simple than this. This is the reason Jesus showed up. It's to accomplish this fact. The Son of God appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. The second person of the triune God invaded enemy territory and took our enemy down in a complete and total victory. He came, searched out, and destroyed the works of the devil. And the reason why this is such good news for the children of God is because Christ's victory now becomes our victory for those who are truly born of God, becoming children of God, because they're abiding in the Christ who has the victory over Satan and his works in this way. To abide in Jesus as one born of God is to be a child of God. And as a child of God, not only have our sins been taken away, but now the works of the devil have no power over us. This past week when I was, when I was studying these, these verses, far and away, easy, what were the, John, like, what is the truth? Like, what was something that just sort of jumped out to you? Verses 4 through 10, a lot of things can be said. Like, what was the thing that just sort of reached out and gripped you and grabbed a hold of you and just would not let go? Easy, the end of verse 8. That single sentence there, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The more I thought about this truth, the more it preached to me this singular idea, freedom. To be in Christ is to know true freedom. As children of God, we've been adopted into the family of God through the work of the Son of God. And what this means for you and I is that we, no, we are no longer prisoners of sin, enslaved to its power, and bound to perform the works of the devil as children of 
who have been born of God, we are to know this from the end of verse 8. In Christ, we have been set free from enslavement to Satan and his works. In Christ, we truly know freedom. But see, for some of us, we've resigned ourselves to a way of thinking which says, I cannot break free from this sin which just entangles me. There's no way I can stop sinning in this way. For most of us, what we have are just that one or two things, those sins that just constantly trip us up, that that constantly just seem to be tempting us or causing us to fail or causing us to, to leave God and to walk away from Him. And what we do is we, we lose sight of who we are in Christ and we begin to drift away from our identity as the children of God and we find ourselves just sort of beginning to resign ourselves to the fact like this sin which just seems to be just like in my lap, it's in my pocket, I can just never escape it, I can never do anything to flee from it and we just begin to think this way like I'm just never going to break free from this sin which just always is like entangling me and causing me to, to stumble to fail and to fall. There's no way I can stop sinning in this way is what we begin to tell ourselves. And instead of seeing our identity as children of God who have been freed from the power of sin, we see our identity wrapped up in our sin and then resign ourselves to begin to just live life acting out this identity, a false identity. So we say and we, we think things like this, I struggle with my emotions. So I can't help it when I yell at my kids. That's just, that's just who I am. I mean, this is just the thing that I'm never going to be able to get rid of. I struggle with integrity, so really I can't, I can't help it. It's not my fault when I begin to lie at work. After all, it's just, it's just what I'm about. I struggle with sexual sin, so I just can't help it when I look at porn. I mean, it's just, it's just what I do. I struggle with addiction, so it's, I, I, I just can't help it. It's, it's what I do when I drink too much, when I watch too much TV, when I spend too, too much money. I mean, you can't, you can't hold me responsible for that. It's just what I'm about. It's who I am. I'm never going to get victory over this sin, and so after all, I'm just going to just think and operate and give myself over in this way. And I think the resounding truth that is coming from the end of verse 8 is this, that is not true if you abide in Christ. It's just not true if you abide in Christ. I love the old hymn. Former Methodist floating around in here. Anybody been around? John Wesley, famous brother Charles Wesley, literally wrote hundreds and hundreds of hymns. One of the hymns he wrote was a hymn called O for a Thousand Tongues. And there's a line in that hymn that goes like this. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. I don't know what Charles Wesley was looking at whenever he was inspired to write that hymn, but man, I'd make a good argument that he was reading something along the lines of 1 John chapter 3. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. His blood has set the prisoner free. John says, you know that Christ appeared in order to take away sins. How did Jesus take away sins? Through the bloody work of the cross. His blood, His work on the cross is what makes my foul, sin-ridden heart clean. His blood is what avails for me, pleads on my behalf before the Father. His blood is what sets the prisoner free. His blood is what cancels sin so that when I stand before God on that final day of judgment, it's not me in my sin-stained, poison-filled heart going before God and going, I've got nobody to plead on my behalf, but now I can stand before the Father and go, I plead the blood of Christ. He is who breaks the Cancels sin. He is the one who sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. What's interesting is this, is that when he writes that first part of the verse, he says, Jesus, he's the one who breaks the power of canceled sin. 
So Jesus and his work on the cross cancels sin, but then it's Jesus who comes and also destroys the works of the devil. Christians know the power of canceled sin, but they also know their tendency to still sin and be tempted to sin. They feel the lingering effects of the power of sin in their lives. The good news of the gospel is this. Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin. He cancels, and then he comes and says that lingering effect, that lingering pull, that lingering draw, that thing in your heart that just sort of creeps up, and you find yourself drifting off to temptation. You find yourself on that late night. You find yourself at work about ready to lie. You find yourself in that place where you're going to yell and get angry at your kids, and you're sort of at that why in the road, and you're going, man, like I feel the desire. I feel the pull to do the opposite of God here in my heart, but I know that I'm no longer enslaved to it. I'm no longer a prisoner to it. Jesus has set me free. He has canceled sin. I am a child of God. And so now I can rest on Jesus for my hope of salvation and the canceling of my sin. And at this exact same moment, I can rest on Jesus to break the power which seems to be drawing my heart away from Christ. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. Listen, the name devil means accuser. Like, that's his name. Accuser. He's the slanderer. And for some of you, you have bought hook, line, and sinker into the accusations of the enemy. And I stand here echoing the words of John, do not be deceived by his accusations. Some of us are so deceived by the devil and we have bought into the deception of a false identity that we have given ourselves over to a lie. And I want you to hear this again and I want you to set your mind on this reality in Christ. If you are one who knows the truthfulness of verse 5, that Christ appeared in order to take away my sins, this is true of me, then set your mind on this reality. In Christ, you are a child of God. This is your identity. And it is possible for you as a child of God to experience the benefits of your new identity in Christ, the ability to habitually walk in a pattern of righteousness and to flee from the desire, the temptation, the pull, the lingering effects of the power of sin. It is possible for you. One of my favorite books is Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody? John Bunyan. Okay, a handful of us. All of you who didn't raise your hand, you're doing yourself an incredible disservice by not reading that book. Your job today is like to go onto Amazon. I think you can probably buy one for like a penny somewhere. I mean, there's just, there's tons of copies over it. At one point in time, the number one selling book in the world was the Bible. Like the number two selling book was like Pilgrim's Progress, like a number of editions printed. And so it's worth your while to go and read this. But the story of the Pilgrim's Progress revolves around the main character whose name is Christian. Christian becomes a Christian on this journey as he's fleeing from the city of destruction and he's heading towards the city, the city of God, the city of Zion. And on his journey, he picks up a fellow friend whose name is Hopeful. And as Christian and Hopeful are walking the path toward the city of God, this path becomes stony, it becomes rough, it becomes hard, and they begin to think these things to themselves. This road, this path, this journey, this walk that we are on, moving towards God in the city of God, it's becoming pretty hard. And what they do in the story is they look off to their left, and what they see is something that John Bunyan calls bypath meadow. And it's very soft, very grassy, very green, very easy compared to the relative stony path that's in front of them. And so what they do is they get off on bypath meadow and they begin to walk because Christian assumes that at some point in time it's going to go around the stony path and link back up onto the main road that takes you to the city of God. And as he is on this bypath meadow, they end up stopping in a forest, sleeping at night, and then what happens is they wake up and they are captured by a giant called Giant Despair, and Giant Despair hauls them off into Doubting Castle and locks them up in a dungeon throws away the key, basically. And so giant despair in Doubting Castle begins to mock Christian and hopeful. 
begins to say to them, you're never going to get out. You're never going to escape this doubt. You're never going to escape this despair. You need to kill yourselves. He actually goads them to commit suicide. You're never going to escape. It's never going to be freedom. Freedom is no longer an option for you. And he beats on them, and he tortures them, and he starves them and says, the only way out of this is to kill yourself. And in the story, Christian sort of begins to drift this way, and he begins to despair, and he begins to doubt, and he begins to loathe the fact that he tried to take the easier path, and he finally comes to the place where he's about to despair, and then he remembers something. Something comes to his mind, that at his conversion, whenever he became old Christian and became new Christian in Christ, he remembered somebody gave him something. And he reaches into his shirt, and he remembers that tied around his neck, there is a key. And he comes to his senses and he begins to wonder, I just wonder if this key will unlock the door of Doubting Castle and set me free from giant despair. And he walks over there, sticks the key in the lock, turns it, the dungeon door flings wide open. The key that was given to him at his conversion was given a name inside that book. And the name of the key was this, Promise promise. It was the promises of God that for those who are truly in Christ, you do not have to live in doubt and you do not have to live in despair. Some of us have given ourselves completely over to despair and doubt, looking at sin, this sort of lingering effects of sin in our life and go, there is no hope for me in being able to escape this. There is no hope for me being able to flee this. So the obvious conclusion for me is just to give myself over to this. And I'm sitting here telling you this, that you have been given the promises of God. And the promises of God for the children of God are for those who are abiding in Christ because you've truly been made new in him. And what is at least one singular promise that is given to you, which is the key which unlocks doubt, unlocks the doors of despair, frees us from this giant, these chains, this bondage, which we think are always going to be ours. It's at least this in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You are no longer enslaved to, the, to Satan and his ways. You're no longer enslaved to Satan and his ways. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. His destruction has loosed you from his chains. What's interesting is that word destroy, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In the original language, it's this idea of being loosed. We were chained, now we've been loosed. Jesus came in with some butt-kicking, door broke things, free. Once enslaved to sin, now no longer enslaved to sin. Power of sin was all we knew, now it's no longer got a hold on us. Why? Because the Son of God has done something on your behalf. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Grace upon grace has been shown to the true children of God, born of God, who are abiding in Christ. This promise unlocks all of this Christ. I know this is a bit unorthodox for us, but I couldn't escape it as I was thinking this past week through the scriptures. And I just want to ask this question here. And I mean, you can raise your hand or you can just answer it in your heart, but I just felt compelled to ask this question here, just assuming that some of us were in this place and the question is this, is there anyone who desires to know this kind of freedom over sin? Me. I desire to know this kind of freedom over sin. Pastor John isn't, isn't Pastor Jesus. <laughs> ah, yes. In Jesus there is no sin. Not Jesus. Still battle my own, my own sin. Like, I long to know the promises of God in such a way to where I can live out the realities of what is mine in Christ. And so what I want to do is I just want to hit pause right now. For those of us who raised our hand and said, man, I want to know, I desire to know this kind of freedom over sin. I just want to hit pause. I want to pray for us right now in this way. This is a little bit weird for us. We don't normally do this, but I just felt compelled this week. I couldn't shake the thought that this needs to be done right now. So we're going to do it, and then we're going to continue on. God, my prayer is this, is that, Father, you would bear the promise that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil, that you would bear this promise on our hearts right now, on the hearts of your children, that you would grant us a clear vision of the privilege we have as your children, that you would help us to see the freedom we have in you and help us to know the broken power of canceled sin all because of Christ. 
God, make these realities more true than the air we even breathe. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So what does John do, verses 9 through 10? He basically repeats himself. He just basically said earlier, if you're in Christ, it is completely um, incongruous for you to give yourself over to sin in this way. Now what he just goes a step further and says, for those who have truly been born of God, it's just simply impossible for you to give yourself over to sin. John simply moves on to remind us one last time that those abiding in Christ will not, indeed cannot, go on living in sin as the consistent and prevailing pattern of their lives. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's nature abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. To be born of God means that God's nature now abides in you, and when this happens to a person, their desires are radically changed. It becomes impossible for them to make a practice of sinning. They simply cannot keep on sinning because they have been born of God. Now, the Apostle John isn't teaching the idea of sinless perfection. Like when I said earlier at the very beginning of the sermon, when we get into some of these verses, and I said arguably these are some of the hardest verses that, have, that we can understand. They've been misapplied over and over in the Scriptures because what it looks like what John is saying is this. The moment you become a Christian, you're never going to sin again. The fact that God's nature now abides in you means you will be perfect immediately and never to sin again. If people have come along and said, hey, have you got sin in your life? Yes, I've got sin in my life. Then here's the reality. You are not actually a believer. And that's not necessarily true. And we know this, that John is not teaching the idea of sinless perfection. Why? Because of what we, how we let Scripture interpret Scripture. John has already said back in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin... So John has a category for for brothers and sisters in Christ genuinely born again, stumbling and tripping into sin. But the thing is this, is that the moment they do, they're not satisfied in that. Their hearts are weeping, their hearts are broken, they're sad, they're, they're distraught because they're doing opposite of who they are in Christ. So when John says something like this, no one born of God is going to make a practice of sin. They're not going to keep on sinning. God's nature abides in them. He's just simply speaking to the reality of our new nature as children of God. Because of our new birth, we have a new nature. Sin no longer marks the character and conduct of our lives. Because we now abide in Christ and in the power of His person and work in the gospel, yes, we're going to fall into sin from periods of time at different periods of time, but we're not going to habitually, consistently walk in sin. Sin is no longer going to be our habit. Sin is no longer going to be our normal practice. Sin is no longer going to be our love. Sin is no longer going to be our delight. In the end, John just simply sums up everything with two simple tests which distinguish the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil when he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. I like this. Give it to me, John. Bottom line this thing for me. What is it? He says, listen, you want to know you're a child of God? You're going to do right, and you're going to love people. You want to know you're a child of devil, not truly born again? God's nature doesn't abide in you, not really abiding in Christ? You're going to not do right, and you're going to not love people. And that's what he says in verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness, this person's not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John says it's just simply that simple. This is how the children of God think and relate to sin. So how do we respond to this? I think it's important to remember the various groups John is addressing when he wrote his letter. Like it's not like John just wrote down and goes, everything I'm going to say is addressed to just Christians. He has different categories of people in his mind. He has this category, those who are fully assured Christians. He's writing to people who know they're saved and they're assured they're saved. They have the assurance of eternal life. Another category of believer or another category that he's writing his letter to are this, Christians struggling with assurance. They're truly born again. They are, to use the language of verse 9, born of God. God's nature resides in them. Christ has appeared. Christ has taken away their sins. They abide in Jesus. But this idea of assurance, they're struggling with it. Another category that John is writing to 
in his letter is this idea of those who are falsely assured non-Christians. They think they're saved. They think they're abiding in Christ. They think they're born of God. They think God's nature abides in them, but the reality is this. They're actually not, not a believer. That's who he's talking to here in these verses. Don't be deceived. Don't think you can abide in Christ and that you're good with God if your life is still given over to a consistent pattern of sin. You're falsely assured. You're going to stand before God one day and it's going to go bad for you. The fourth category that John just addresses in his letter are those who are just non-Christians. It's flat out. They're not even playing the game and they're not even trying to play the game. They're like, listen, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm falsely assured. I don't even think I'm sort of struggling with assurance. I just know I'm not a believer. And it's those four categories that John is talking to and addressing in his, in his first letter. And I think the way that we respond to this is that we, we know where we are in the midst of this for some of us in those categories. And the, what we are to do is recognize that no matter what group we find ourselves in, fully assured Christian, Christian struggling with assurance, those of us who are falsely assured thinking we're good with God when we're actually not, and those of us who are just, I know I'm not a Christian. I'm questioning. I've got questions. I'm skeptical. I'm doubting the things of God. I'm trying to figure out this Jesus thing. We're to recognize that no matter what group we find ourselves in, our response is to remember the first appearing of Christ, which the Apostle John talked about in verses 5 and 8, and to remember the good news of Jesus that verse 5 and verse 8 proclaim. So if you find yourself in that category of being a Christian, fully assured, being a Christian, maybe struggling with assurance, I think we remember the promises of Christ. Jesus truly has appeared and taken away your sins. Jesus truly has appeared and he is, has destroyed the works of the devil. Be encouraged by this. Know the freedom you have, Christian, in this. You are no longer bound to the desires and the sin which sort of cling to your heart. It's powerless against you. Trust in those promises. Think of the pilgrim's progress. You've been given the key of promise. You don't have to live in the world of doubt and live in the world of despair. In a room our size, and just with the, the group that we have here today, undoubtedly someone falls into that third category, falsely assured non-Christians. Some of us here today think we're all right with God, but when we actually step back and look at the panorama of our life, the thing that just sort of rises to the surface of, uh, is this. My life is marked by a consistent pattern of sin. And what John says is this. If that is true of you, you are not genuinely born again. You have neither seen Jesus and you don't know Jesus. So what is your response if you're in this category today? Your response is this. It's to remember the promises of Christ from, chapter, from verse 5 and verse 8. You remember the person of Christ. Jesus came as the sinless one. You remember the perfect work of Christ. He appeared in order to take away sins. You remember the promise of Christ. The Son of God appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. And you can know these realities personally in a saving way today. And that same truth is just as true for those who are just no non-Christians. Your response is the same. Verse 5, verse 8. Know the person of Christ, sinless. Know the perfect work of Christ. He took away, he can take away your sins. Know the promise of Jesus. He appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. So where are you at in these scheme of things, in those categories? That is the way that you need to respond today. And I encourage you to be obedient to what God is calling you to do in regard to these things of Christ. Let's pray.